on December 14, 1992, in the town of Manchester, England. Local trio Barry Sutcliffe, Michael Coop, and Margaret Coop were all given the fright of their lives when, while walking to work alongside of a highway, they spotted a badly hurt girl crawling across the road begging for help. They quickly ran over to help the young woman, and it was only when they did so that they realized the true severity of her injuries. Not only was she bruised and battered, but she was seriously burned as well. So bad were these burns that, despite being taken to nearby Withington Hospital, the girl would ultimately slip into a coma and die as a result of her injuries just four days later. Of course, this left a problem when trying to identify her as, due to how badly she had been seared, only one fingerprint had survived. Luckily, though, that was enough to figure out her identity as being Suzanne Capper, a 16-year-old girl from the area who had effectively been burned alive and then left to suffer out her final moments in the worst pain imaginable. This is Monsters. When Suzanne Capper was born on September 1st, 1976, it was a period where being in a working-class family from the north of England was not an easy life. This would only worsen as the 80s rolled around and Margaret Thatcher's rise to power saw much of the industry the area was built on crumble in front of their eyes. That was why, with jobs hard to come by and tensions rising high everywhere as a result, Many couples ended up buckling under the pressure, with this leading to a lot of children growing up in broken homes. And that was exactly what happened to both Suzanne and her older sister Michelle too, because when the latter was still a baby, her birth father would abandon both her, her sister, and her mother Elizabeth, from there never having any further contact with his daughters again. Following that, things would only get more unstable for the family when a series of stepfathers would enter the youngsters' lives, each of which, with one notable exception, only ending up proving to be more transient than the last. Of course, that notable exception was John Capper, someone Elizabeth had met during her girl's later preteen years and who, after a while, would become something of a surrogate father to them both. But even this relationship wasn't meant to last forever, and so, by 1990, John and Elizabeth would have decided to split as well. While the breakup was hard for each of them, it was arguably even harder on the kids as now it felt much like they were losing a dad for the second time over. And to make matters worse, with their mother struggling under the weight of her own mental health, she became incapable of fulfilling her motherly duties for Suzanne and Michelle. Of course, with them still being minors in the eyes of the law and so needing someone to act as their caregiver, this meant they were temporarily placed in the care of the state authority for a while that summer. While these months marked a very difficult experience for them, particularly the younger of the two, once they were released from care later that year, there was hope things would improve. And that was because John Capper, the closest man to a father they'd ever known, took them into his home at Six Bewley Walk, as, by now, he was the only adult in their life who was up to the task. But while he would try his best to be as good of a father figure as possible to the girls, 
Much of the emotional damage they suffered had been done by now, and ultimately he couldn't stop Suzanne from starting to act out around that time. How did she do so? Well, with her now entering her teenage years and feeling abandoned by both of her birth parents, the younger of the two sisters would begin getting into trouble at school, primarily by not going. Like so many people her age who felt she was being failed by both the system and the people closest to her, the youngest capper would start skipping classes on a regular basis and instead use her time to deal drugs to her peers. And when she wasn't doing that, she was also getting involved in other petty crime when she started handling stolen motor vehicles in the area, helping to shift them onto new buyers who often used them for parts. Of course, this isn't to say Suzanne was some kind of irredeemable public menace during her teenage years, though. No, while she may have been falling down a path which would have likely seen her get into trouble with the law eventually, she was still someone who had been described by those who knew her as very kind and loving. Someone who, in the words of her sister, was a high-spirited, well-mannered girl who ultimately just wanted to be loved. And if we put her actions in this context, it makes it all fall into place a whole lot easier as, rather than just being a girl who was causing problems for the sake of it, she was instead in many ways someone who was crying out for attention with every bad move she made, desperately hoping that someone would notice her and feel for her. But with her being unable to find this at school, and with her for whatever reason feeling like she couldn't find this at home with her stepfather either, Suzanne would instead start spending more and more time with another woman she had known for a while, a woman named Jean Powell. Jean was a 26-year-old single mother of three who lived in the same area as the Capper family, and who had first met the sisters when Suzanne had a chance encounter with Jean's younger brother, Clifford Pook, one day in late 1990. As it would later be described, on that afternoon, Clifford had been sitting on the side of the road, dejected about an argument he had just had with his then-girlfriend. Being the naturally caring person Suzanne was, in spite of all her truant behavior, she approached the boy so as to see if he was okay. After that, the two became friends and it wouldn't be long before the young woman was introduced to Clifford's sister Jean, a powerful character and someone who was able to dominate those around her with ease. Connecting with her so well at this point, Suzanne would stay in regular contact with Jean as she felt like she was one of the few people in the world who could truly understand her. In fact, not only would she become a friend of hers, she would even babysit her kids for free on a regular basis, with her reason being that it allowed her more time away from home and gave her a chance to be in an environment where she felt comfortable and loved. That said, for as much as it may have seemed to be a caring environment to Suzanne, Jean was far from a loving woman. No, she was someone who knew exactly what she was doing, and that was exploiting a lost young girl looking for someone to take care of her. Over the next couple of years, she turned the young woman into one of her top drug dealers. The drugs Suzanne was selling were regularly being sourced through her new friend and so, as a result of this, she basically became an employee of the single mother on two levels, one as a babysitter and the other as an accomplice to a crime. And this tied the two together even more closely then because as time went on and she began feeling less and less happy at home with her stepfather, the youngest of the Capper sisters would start effectively living at Jean's house at nearby 97 Langworthy Road full-time. 
But it wasn't like she had a great setup there either, because with four people already living in the dilapidated two-bedroom home located only seven minutes away from her stepfather's, Suzanne was forced to sleep on a makeshift bed in the downstairs dining room as there was nowhere else she could lay her head at night. Still though, she enjoyed being there so much that it didn't really matter to her. And it didn't stop her sister Michelle from staying there with her for a time too, because, with her also feeling disillusioned over the direction of her own life at this point, she'd become a frequent fixture at the Powell's household as well. At a certain point, Michelle would begin pulling away from the social circle which was developing there when it became apparent to her that some of the people who were becoming part of it were, in her own words, evil new friends. As for Suzanne, however, she had no such qualms and so, instead, she continued to spend the majority of her time there, skipping school on an even more regular basis now as she got to know Jean. All while she was also becoming familiar with another close associate of the family, Bernadette McNeely. Bernadette was a neighbor of the Powells, someone who lived only three doors down and so was a regular fixture in the household as a result. But while Jean had initially seemed to be somewhat protective of Suzanne on account of her value as a worker, if nothing else, Bernadette wouldn't have the same temperament when it came to this relative newcomer into the situation. No, she would be outright hostile to the young woman, in fact, something which wasn't helped by the fact that, when she moved into the house herself soon thereafter, she'd be forced to share that makeshift dining room bed with Suzanne during the night. As time went on, the verbal abuse and overall bullying she inflicted upon Suzanne would start becoming so normalized that even Jean began getting involved. It's unclear why Jean followed along, but what we do know is that she clearly saw more value in keeping Bernadette close, so it benefited her more to take her side in such matters. Yes, like a true sociopath, Jean Powell was always a woman who assessed any given situation and looked at it from the point of view of how she could make it work best for herself, even if this meant hurting someone else in the process. And that then would see things only get worse for Suzanne as the weeks and months went on because, now without her sister there to help her out whenever required, she'd be ripe for the picking as far as her abusers were concerned, with this including them pulling her out of school full-time and having her take up work as a cleaner at a local insurance company in the city center of Manchester. When Michelle and John Capper eventually found out about this, as well as the fact that Suzanne was only getting to keep five pounds a week out of her wages, they confronted Jean and demanded that she stop exploiting their kin. At that point, though, Jean reportedly became so defensive and so angry that she threatened to burn the Capper's house down should they ever come to her door and speak to her in such a manner again. So this begs the question, why didn't they just forcibly remove Suzanne from the situation at that point by calling the police? Well, it wasn't as simple as that because by the autumn of 1992, Suzanne had turned 16 and so, under UK law, was considered an adult who was legally able to make decisions for herself. Decisions which included where she wanted to live and whether or not she wanted to continue going to school. Given the circumstances she was living in, why didn't she herself want to leave? Well, that's also a complicated question because, having been indoctrinated fully into the household by then, Suzanne was apparently happy with her living situation, despite how grim it might have appeared to an outsider. That's right, as anyone who's ever lived in an abusive relationship, be it romantic or platonic, will tell you, once you've effectively been brainwashed by your abuser into thinking this is the only path you can have in life, 
It's very hard to get out of that mindset, and so quickly you'll begin to accept it as a good thing and try to justify it to yourself. As her sister Michelle would also later put it, in fact, quote, It was not that Suzanne was scared of them. It was just that she would do anything for them. She pampered their every whim. This feeling of hero worship would only continue to grow from there. Even as more and more people entered the situation and the power dynamic shifted even further into the abuser's favor. It wasn't only Jean and Bernadette who were lording their control over this young woman after a while, because soon Glenn Powell, Jeffrey Lee, and Anthony Dudson were all getting involved as well. Glenn was the ex-husband of Jean, and while the two hadn't been together for some time by that point, they still remained on good terms, enough to where he'd be a frequent visitor to her home. As for Jeffrey and Anthony, they were romantic partners of Jean and Bernadette respectively, and so, as a result of this, they'd also be regular fixtures around the house. On top of that, eventually Clifford Pook, the brother of Jean who had first put her in contact with Suzanne, would also start coming around more and more. And with this communal atmosphere growing, it led to wild, drug-fueled parties often being thrown. One of these, in fact, would take place in late November of 1992. A night which, as far as Suzanne Capper was concerned, at least initially felt like any other evening. However, this would change when, during the party, a friend of a friend who had joined them named Mohammed Youssef would take a liking to Jean. Seeing this, Suzanne attempted to convince her friend she should sleep with him as he seemed like a decent guy and was attractive enough. Unfortunately though, while Suzanne felt this way about the newcomer, her friend didn't see things the same way. No, she would actually take great offense to the suggestion, with her berating the youngster for, as she would later put it, not only trying to make her go with an Arab, but also trying to sleep with a man for money. Something there's no evidence to suggest Suzanne was telling her friend to do. And it wouldn't just be verbal abuse Suzanne would be on the receiving end of as a result of this faux pas. Far from it, in fact, because, over the next four days, she would be held at the Powell House against her will and given the beating of a lifetime by Jean. Of course, with even her realizing this was a step more than she was willing to take, Suzanne would report the incident to neighbors soon thereafter in hopes that they'd be able to help. Ultimately, though, for one reason or another, those neighbors chose not to believe her story. And as if that wasn't bad enough, when she showed up at her estranged mother's door with a black eye later that same day, asking if she could stay with her as it was the only place she felt safe anymore, she would be rejected outright. In fact, Elizabeth Capper would even go as far as to tell her daughter that the reason she didn't want her to stay there was because it would have made her current boyfriend unhappy. Ah, the old Diane Downs scenario, when your partner doesn't like kids and you choose them over your own children. The reaction of her mother, combined with the silver tongue of her abusers, eventually led Suzanne to believing she'd overreacted and that things had not gotten as out of hand as she'd first thought, with her returning to the Powell household. And all that just serves yet another reminder that, when you're in an abusive relationship, all logic can often go out the window as the person who's on the receiving end of it will regularly come up with every justification they can as to re-enter the situation. At least Suzanne would make a step in the right direction at that point, though, because, as a result of the incident, she stopped living with Jean Powell full-time and even began going back to stay at her stepfather's house on certain nights of the week. But even if she was no longer there 24-7, she still felt the pull towards her second home as, despite everything, in her mind that was where her real family was. 
Of course, whenever she did return to Jean's house, she would now be forced to put up with an increasing number of incidents, each of which seeming to get more and more extreme than the last. In one case, for example, after Bernadette, Anthony, Glenn, and Jean all contracted pubic lice, they immediately blamed Suzanne, telling her that Bernadette must have gotten it from sleeping in the same bed as her. Sure, there was nothing to suggest that that was true, but to the increasingly aggressive group, it didn't matter. No, to them, all that mattered was the punishment. So this is why, over the hours which followed, they forced the young woman to get naked in front of them and shave off all of her pubic hair. Then, only a few days later, in what turned out to be the final straw for Jean, she had become convinced that Suzanne had stolen a pink duffel coat worth about 60 pounds which belonged to her, and so as a punishment, more drastic action would have to be taken. In the end, the breaking point between bullying and full-blown murder was less than 100 pounds, and that's what makes this case all the more tragic, because, with such little value being placed on human life by her eventual killers, it shines an even sadder light on her decision to trust them and stick with them even after all they'd put her through prior. At the time, she had no idea her end was coming. She had actually believed the situation was improving because, on December 7, 1992, both Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely appeared at John Capper's door and invited his stepdaughter to a party they were throwing. And to sweeten the deal and make sure she appeared at the party, they explained that a boy she had a crush on was going to be there. So, despite the pleas of her stepdad and her sister to cut ties with her friends, Suzanne would agree to go back to Jean's house with them to the party, only to find out once she got there that she had been tricked. There was no party and there was no boy waiting for Suzanne once she went through the front door of 97 Langworthy Road that evening. Instead, what she was met with was Anthony immediately grabbing her and pushing her down to the ground. While she was being held down, Glenn stepped in with a razor and began shaving the young woman's head and eyebrows, all before making her pick up all of the hair off the floor and throw it into the trash. But that wouldn't be the end of the humiliation this time around, because, now with her face completely shaved, Suzanne would have a plastic bag placed over her head by Glenn as he began walking her around the house like a dog while continually striking her across the skull. After that, both Jean and Bernadette started kicking her in the torso, causing her once more to fall to the ground in an attempt to protect herself. Unfortunately, there was no protection to be found for Suzanne inside that particular house on that particular day, because, while she was curled up on the floor, the two women who had invited her over picked up a three-foot-long wooden pole and a belt, from there using both of them to lash and strike at the defenseless young woman. Then, just as she had been forced to do before, Suzanne would be taken to the bathroom where she was forced to strip naked and shave her pubic hair off all over again. Following that, in the final insult for the evening, Suzanne would be taken upstairs and locked inside a cupboard where she would spend the rest of the night panicked and fearful for her life, unable to get a wink of sleep with no opportunity to free herself. But even if at some point during the long night she may have been able to take solace in the fact that a good night's sleep for the others might help to cool them down, this turned out to not be the case as, on the morning of December 8th, things would start back up again, this time worse than before. Rather than her punishment being based around shame and humiliation, things would instead progress to a level of outright torture. That's right, after daring to keep Jean's children up all night with her crying while locked away inside a cupboard, 
the group decided they needed to move Suzanne to the downstairs back room, where she'd be tied spread eagle with an electrical cable to an upturned bed. What followed on from that would be so gruesome that it's hard to even imagine it actually taking place. Basically, over the next five days, Suzanne would remain tied to that same bed while also being blindfolded and gagged, unable to move and completely at the whim of her captors. And unfortunately for her, her captures had very bad intentions, with this becoming clear when they started regularly beating her, burning her with cigarettes, and even injecting her with amphetamines as to make sure she stayed awake. As a way of also keeping her alert and fully aware of what was happening to her, Loud electronic music would be played through headphones strapped to her ears at full volume over and over again, with one of these songs, Hi I'm Chucky Wanna Play, becoming particularly noteworthy later on account of its reference to the villain in the movie Child's Play. And that wouldn't be the only reference to Chucky either, as it happened because, whenever each torture session commenced across this nearly week-long period, Bernadette always began by entering the room and speaking the phrase, quote, Chucky's coming to play. But where were Clifford and Jeffrey at this point? Well, despite being regular fixtures at the Powell House prior to that, neither of them had taken part in the kidnapping or torture, and there was no reason to believe they even knew such a thing was going on. This would all change, however, when they showed up at Jean's front door one morning that week, and from there were immediately let in on what was going on. Of course, had they any kind of humanity at this point, they surely would have found a way to try to free Suzanne. Or if that wasn't possible, at least find a way to get out of the situation themselves, then immediately go to the police. Instead of doing that, they decided to take part in the torture, with Clifford in particular taking great pleasure in pulling two of his former friend's teeth out with a pair of pliers. It probably doesn't need to be explained that there was no anesthetic used, and instead, every inch of the excruciating pain would be felt by his victim. More so than it should, in fact, because after a failed first attempt, which saw him snap one of her teeth in half, he'd then dig right into the nerve endings, causing him to laugh with glee as she screamed in agony. And this wasn't all he was taking part in torture-wise either, because with Suzanne having been laying in the same bed for days now, she'd understandably urinated and defecated all over herself. So in a sadistic attempt to clean her up, Clifford, Jeffrey, and a number of the others would place the girl into a bath containing concentrated disinfectant, where she was scrubbed so hard with a stiff brush that portions of her skin were removed. As for the skin which remained following the cleaning, that would be horribly burned by the disinfectant. By then, things had reached a point where the pain and torture was so unimaginable, Suzanne may very well have welcomed the release of death. But that almost didn't happen because there were a couple of occasions during her captivity in which she was almost freed. The first of them occurred when 19-year-old David Hill, someone else who had been an occasional guest at the Powell House, was asked to sit in and look after something while the others went out for a while. Of course, prior to getting there, he had no idea what was awaiting him, so when he arrived and heard Anthony shouting, quote, Shut up, you slag, from another room, only for him to then be shown that same room where Suzanne was bound and near death, he immediately panicked. As he would later put it, by that point she was lying face up with a cloth placed over her face covering her eyes and nose. On top of that, there was dried blood on her lip likely as a result of the impromptu dental work which had been done on her previously. Still, afraid of what might happen to him if he didn't agree to go along with what he was told to do, 
David told the others that he'd watch over their victim while they went out to get some supplies. And while in hindsight, it's easy to say he should have waited until they had gone and freed the young woman himself, he was clearly far too fearful of the repercussions. Even when she directly asked him to set her free, in fact, he was unable to do so. But that's understandable given what he had just seen, and means that he can probably be put off to the side somewhat when it comes to culpability in the crime. Still, what makes this missed opportunity all the worse was that while it was happening, two of the eventual killers, Jeffrey and Anthony, were digging the knife in even further by going as far as to visit Paul Barlow, the fiancé of Suzanne's sister, Michelle. With the full knowledge of what was going on back at Jean's home, they would act innocent while they helped Paul fix up his car. If they had any sense of guilt over what was happening, they could have ended it all in one fell swoop by giving the girl's future brother-in-law a chance to put it all to a stop. And this was something he himself would struggle with when he learned this after the fact, with him later going on record as saying, quote, They could have told me there and then. The door would have been kicked down and I would have gotten Suzanne out. I did not think they were capable of such savagery. Now all I want is ten minutes with them in a back room. But this opportunity would never come for Paul or any of the other members of the Capper family because, during the early hours of December 14th, the six kidnappers would finally decide they had had enough of punishing their victim and that it was time to draw things to a close. Unfortunately for Suzanne, though, given what they had done to her, there was no way they were going to be able to let her go at this point. No, instead they would have to make sure she never spoke to anyone about what had occurred during that week, and this would necessitate killing her. Of course, had they really wanted to at this point, they could have at least ended the young woman's suffering quickly, but still wanting to offer one pain-filled blow to her before her life was snuffed out, they came up with a method which they felt would inflict maximum cruelty on her. This is when they packed Suzanne's beaten and barely living body into the trunk of a stolen white Fiat Panda and drove 15 miles or 24 kilometers out of the city into a narrow and quiet lane at Werneth Low on the outskirts of Stockport. And knowing full well what was coming next, Bernadette, Anthony, and both Jean and Glynn, the only four who could fit in the car, would reportedly giggle the entire way there. As for the girl locked in their trunk, however, there would be nothing for her to laugh about because, while she likely had no idea about the full severity of what was to come, she could probably tell her end was near. This would all be confirmed when the four arrived at their destination soon thereafter, with them pulling Suzanne out of the trunk all before pushing her down an embankment into a patch of brambles and dousing her with fuel. Perhaps the most horrifying detail to come out of all of this, however, was that, from there, it took three attempts for Bernadette to use a lighter to get the fuel to ignite, meaning that in her darkest hour, Suzanne would suffer the final indignity of having the whole thing stretched out so as to create added fear and dread. But at least that wouldn't stretch out for too long, because, after a few aborted shots at lighting the girl up, Glenn and Anthony stepped in and took control of the situation, quickly setting fire to Suzanne. And as they all watched her burn, Bernadette, in yet another moment of sadistic cruelty, would take to singing the Tramp's 1976 hit, Disco Inferno, giving particular emphasis to the lyrics, Burn Baby Burn. As for the others, while they wouldn't sing along, they would watch on happily as, in the words of Anthony himself, quote, She went straight up in flames and was screaming. The flames lit up the whole forest. Still, at least one of them did seem to have a mild twinge of conscience at this point, as, the way Jean would later describe it at the trial, quote, 
I saw a flash. I turned around and looked and saw Suzanne in flames. She was screaming. I was numb. I was scared. Of course, this was said during a time when she was likely hoping to get sympathy from a jury, and so the honesty of it should be taken with a grain of salt. At the very least, we can say that she made no attempt to put out the flames then, as, instead, the foursome would watch Suzanne burn for a while, all before getting bored and leaving her to go buy some alcohol for the trip home. What they didn't account for, however, was that, after they left, their victim would somehow still be clinging to life. And that's what led to her dragging herself to a highway where she'd be discovered by Barry Sutcliffe and Michael and Margaret Coop, with them quickly taking her to a house nearby where the elderly couple living there let them in and attempted to soothe her wounds as best they could. Those wounds were far too much for them to handle, and all they could really do instead was give Suzanne a glass of water after she'd requested one. Not that she could drink it under her own power anymore, though. No, instead the glass had to be held to her lips, as by then she was severely weakened and both her hands looked like ash. On top of that, her legs would later be described as resembling raw meat, with her feet being badly charred as well. Still, though, she would remain surprisingly polite to those who had helped her, with her going out of her way to thank them for what they were doing. When the ambulance came soon afterward to rush her to the hospital, they could at least say they'd tried everything they could. Sadly, though, this wouldn't be enough, because with severe burns covering 80% of her body, so much so that when her family later showed up at the hospital to see her, they were unable to recognize her at first. She would ultimately die just four days later of multiple organ failure. But before she passed away, she was able to name the people who had tortured and set her on fire, and following that, it wouldn't take long for the authorities to show up at Jean's door, where they found a complete and utter mess waiting for them. Upon entry, the police were met with a living room that was littered with trash, drug paraphernalia, and stolen car parts. But that wasn't all they found, because after a quick search of the property, a pair of bloody pliers, as well as Susan Capper's hair and teeth, would be discovered in the trash. Still, though, even with this overwhelming evidence against them, the six kidnappers would at first deny any wrongdoing in the incident. That was until Anthony Dudson's father, learning more about the crime now, urged his son to come clean as it was the only way he would ever be able to purge his soul. So, with him being the first to crack and spill the beans about the week prior, Officers at the scene would be so disturbed about the details they were learning that a number of them were reportedly moved to tears. Not everyone felt emotional about the situation, though, because, still feeling no remorse over their actions, Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely would laugh and joke with each other as they were being arrested. However, that would change once it became apparent that they were each facing life sentences behind bars, as after realizing that, they began turning on one another, with each blaming the other for being the instigator of the crime. On top of that, no one would admit to being the one who had started the fatal fire. No, instead they all claimed they tried to talk the others out of doing so. And perhaps realizing she was the most culpable of all given the majority of the torture had happened under her own roof, Jean would go one step further by claiming that she was actually trying to help Suzanne. How is she doing this, you may wonder? Well, when she locked her in the cupboard early on during the week, she claimed that she was doing so to protect her from further beatings by her associates. So why not just let her go? It doesn't make sense. 
Of course, once Bernadette got wind of Jean's defense, she decided to try something similar herself, claiming that she had been the one to inject their victim with amphetamines, but only because if she hadn't, the alternative would have been for Suzanne to be shot up with a fatal dose of heroin. Needless to say, though, few people believed their story and there would be little sympathy for any of the defendants in the public consciousness, as when the trial began the following month, each felt their collective hatred firmly being lodged against them. In fact, such a massive public outcry would there be over this murder, the British media could focus on little else for weeks after the fact. For their part, though, rather than focus on the tragedy which had occurred, they'd use the incident to mostly turn the whole thing into yet another case of stoking the fires of moral panic, with them using the story to demonize the working classes everywhere for their apparent willingness to fall into a life of violent crime given the lack of other opportunities they had available to them. The suggestion that a case like this could be applied to all working class households was patently incorrect at best, and downright offensive at worst. And it wasn't the only case of the public getting the blame for the actions of one group because, as well as blaming the working class, certain media sources would also add to this circus by arguing it was a case of girl gang culture run amok in modern day Britain. Again though, this logic ignored the fact that the majority of the people involved in this situation were men, and it has since been criticized as an example of sexism and double standards from the British tabloid media. When that line of creating outrage failed to stick, the news would move on to another scapegoat, the infamous video Nasties, a series of horror movies which had been banned from being viewed in the country during the 80s on account of their perceived ultraviolence. And the reason this became a talking point was because, while she had been inflicting torture on her victim, Bernadette would regularly quote and play songs using sound bites from the once banned movie Child's Play. Of course, there has never been any reason to suggest that violent movies are linked to violent crimes in any real way other than the fact that a person who is already in this state of mind might more easily be drawn towards watching them. In the end, all this blame-shifting and speculation, as poorly judged and badly handled as it may have been, was nothing more than an attempt to try and understand how anyone could be willing to commit such an unspeakable act on another human being. But the sad and terrifying reality is that there often aren't any simple answers to questions like these, a fact which ultimately left everyone involved forever troubled as they were forced to confront their inability to come to terms with it. In lieu of being able to do that, they would instead have to focus their anger on getting justice for Suzanne, something which was made a whole lot easier when a report of home office pathologist Dr. William Lawler stated that, as a result of her burns, there was no way this young woman would ever have been able to survive. On top of that, there was little chance her killers would be able to plead insanity either as, according to a psychological report carried out on them while they were awaiting trial, it would be deemed that they were all perfectly sane, frighteningly so in fact given what they had done. This meant that there was little hope that they wouldn't be convicted of first-degree murder, but luckily for them, as this crime took place in the UK, the death penalty was not an option. That didn't mean they wouldn't each be eligible to spend the rest of their lives behind bars, something the prosecution were hoping to achieve by the time the trial was over. And the judge appointed to the case evidently shared those sentiments as, after a brief trial where he described the case as being, quote, as appalling a murder as is possible to imagine, 
He delivered separate sentences to all six of the defendants involved, with the worst of these being saved for the three who were deemed to be the ringleaders, Bernadette McNeely, Jean Powell, and Glenn Powell. With these three getting the brunt of the blame, they each received life behind bars, which in UK law meant a minimum of 25 years and a maximum of 65. As for the others, despite being found guilty on the same three counts, Anthony Dodson would get a slightly lesser sentence because, while he was to be detained on an indefinite basis, he'd be eligible for parole after 18 years. When it came to the other two, Jeffrey Lee and Clifford Pook, as they had not been there at the planning stages of the kidnapping and had evidently not taken part in the actual murder itself, they were given even more leniency. But that wasn't to say they got off scot-free, of course. No, after pleading guilty to false imprisonment, but later being acquitted of both conspiracy to commit grievous bodily harm and murder, Jeffrey would be sentenced to 12 years in prison. Clifford would get a similar deal, with his sentence being increased to 15 years as he was deemed to have, at least in part, been involved in the conspiracy to commit grievous bodily harm when he pulled Suzanne's teeth out with a pair of pliers. With the law having been laid down and everything settled, family and friends who were there at the trial would cheer and applaud over the judge's decision. Then, once they had a chance to let these emotions out, they watched as all six of the convicted were shipped away to various prisons where they began their lengthy stay serving at Her Majesty's request. Of course, that wouldn't be the end of the story though, because over the years a number of the killers would attempt to appeal their court's decision. And in the case of Jeffrey Lee, this would see him successfully be able to get his prison time reduced from 12 years to 9 years in November of 1999. And he wasn't the only one who had success either, as in 2002, Anthony Dudson, despite being one of the worst offenders of the group, would get his sentence reduced from 18 years to 16 years. As if that wasn't enough, in 2012, Bernadette McNeely successfully managed to get her sentence reduced by one year when she was deemed to have acted like a model prisoner throughout her stay behind bars, something which served as a final slap in the face to Suzanne Capper in the minds of many. And this means that, as of 2023, three out of the six killers are now free men and women once more as Jeffrey, Clifford, and Bernadette have all served their time. But while for the former two, there was little that could be done to keep them in prison anymore as their sentences were up, the decision to let Bernadette back out on the streets on parole was a controversial one. The reason this was so controversial, despite the obvious, was because, while in prison, she had allegedly been having an affair with the prison governor at the time, Mike Martin. On top of that, she was also rumored to have shared a romance with Mira Hindley, one of Britain's most notorious killers, as the two had shared a wing alongside another infamous figure, Rosemary West. Given her choice of companionship and her cozying up to the prison governor, many were left wondering if she was indeed rehabilitated and safe to be let out on the streets again. As of now, she's yet to do anything to get her parole revoked as far as we know because she's now living a new life under a new name at an undisclosed location somewhere in the UK. But what of the other three? Well, they're still in prison to this day. And if Graham Stringer, the local MP for Blackley and Broughton, has anything to do with it, none of these three will ever get released from prison. No, with the scars of what happened still living on to this day, he's made it his mission to make sure the family of Suzanne Capper continues to get justice by keeping the people who killed her behind bars. 
But that's not the only way her legacy is being honored, because her family continues to keep her name alive on social media, even now. And in doing so, they're reminding everyone that she was a very special girl, someone who may have had her own problems in life, but who was good in her soul and who always made sure to find a solution to whatever obstacles were put in front of her. In the words of her mother, in fact, quote, Suzanne was very forgiving, but she was also a girl who had tried to sort out her problems on her own. That's what she did in the end. She survived her ordeal long enough to name every single one of them. In the end, despite it all, despite the torture she'd been put through and the misery she'd endured, Suzanne Capper was still strong enough to make sure the monsters responsible were caught, making her one of the rare people who managed to solve her own murder. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.